Chapter 18 of Hands of Iceland by Victor Hugo. Translated by Abby Langdon Alger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sonia. Chapter 18 On a vast buckler, those relentless men terrified hell with fearful oaths, and beside a black bull which they had slain, all bathing their hands in blood, swore to be revenged. The Seven Chiefs Before Thebes the coast of Norway abounds in narrow bays, in creeks, coves, reefs, lagoons, and little headlands so numerous as to weary the traveller's memory and the topographer's patience. Formerly, if we are to credit popular tradition, every isthmus was haunted by some demon, each bay inhabited by some fairy, each promontory protected by some saint. Superstition mingles all beliefs to create for itself imaginary terrors. Upon Calvert Strand, some miles to the north of Walderhog Cave, there was but a single spot, they said, which was free from all jurisdiction, either of infernal, intermediary, or celestial spirits. It was the glade lying along the shore, overhung by a cliff, on the top of which could still be seen vestiges of the manor of Ralph, or Rudolph the Giant. This little wild meadow, bordered on the west by the sea, and closely shut in by rocks clad with heather, owed its exemption solely to the name of that ancient Norwegian lord, its first possessor. For what fairy, what devil, or what angel, would venture to become master or guest of a domain once occupied and guarded by Ralph the Giant? It is true that the mere name of the much-dreaded Ralph sufficed to give an alarming character to a region wild in itself. But after all, a memory is not so much to be feared as a spirit, and no fisher, belated in rough weather and mooring his bark in Ralph's Creek, had ever seen the will-o'-the-wisp sport and dance upon the summit of a rock, or a fairy ride through the heather in her phosphorescent car drawn by glow-worms, or a saint descend toward the moon after his prayers were said. And yet, if the angry waves and wind had allowed a wandering mariner to land in that hospitable harbour upon the night after the great storm, he might have been struck with superstitious fear at the sight of three men, who upon that same night sat around a huge fire, blazing in the middle of the meadow. Two of them wore the broad felt hat and loose trousers of royal miners. Their arms were bare to the shoulder, their feet were cased in fawn-coloured leather boots, a red sash held their crooked swords and heavy pistols. Each had a hunter's horn slung about his neck. One was old, the other was young. The old man's thick beard and the young man's long hair lent a wild and barbarous look to their faces, which were naturally hard and stern. By his bearskin cap, his tanned leather jacket, the musket slung across his back, his short tight-fitting drawers, his bare knees, his bark shoes, and the glittering axe in his hand, it was easy to guess that the companion of the two miners was a mountaineer from the north of Norway. Certainly, anyone who saw from afar these three weird figures, upon which the flames, fanned by the salt breeze, cast a red, flickering light, might well have been frightened, even had he no faith in spectres and demons. It would have been enough that he believed in thieves, and was somewhat richer than the ordinary poet. The three men constantly turned their heads toward the winding path through the wood which fringes Ralph's meadow, and judging by such of their words as were not carried off by the wind, they were expecting a fourth person. I say, Cannibal, do you know that we should not be allowed to wait so peacefully for this envoy from Count Griffenfeld if we were in the neighboring meadow, Goblin Talby Tilbert's meadow, or yonder in St. Cuthbert's Bay? Don't talk so loud, Jonas, replied the mountaineer. Blessed be Ralph the Giant who protects us. Heaven save me from setting foot in Talby Tilbert's meadow. The other day, I thought I was picking hawthorn there, 
and I gathered mandrake instead, which began to bleed and shriek, and nearly drove me mad. The young miner laughed. <laughs> nearly, Cannibal? For my part, I think that the mandrake shriek produced its full effect upon your feeble brains. Feeble brains yourself, said the vexed mountaineer. Just see, Jonas, he jests at mandrake. He laughs like a lunatic playing with a death's head. Hmm, answered Jonas. Let him go to Walderhock Cave, where the heads of those whom Hans, the foul fiend of Iceland, has murdered, come back every night to dance about his bed of withered leaves and gnash their teeth to lull him to sleep. That's so, said the mountaineer. But, rejoined the young man, did not Mr. Hackett, for whom we are waiting, promise us that Hans of Iceland would take the lead in our rebellion? He did, replied Cannibal, and with the help of that demon, we are sure to conquer the green jackets of Trondheim and Copenhagen. So much the better, cried the old miner. But I am not the man to stand guard beside him at night. At this moment the rustle of dead leaves beneath the tread of a man drew the attention of the speakers. They turned and the firelight gleamed on the newcomer's face. It is he. It is Mr. Hackett. Welcome, Mr. Hackett. You have kept us waiting. We have been here this three quarters of an hour. Mr. Hackett was a short, fat man, dressed in black, and his jovial countenance wore a forbidding expression. Well, friends, said he, I was delayed by my ignorance of the road and the necessary precautions. I left Count Schumacher this morning. Here are three purses of gold which he bade me give you. The two old men flung themselves upon the gold with the eagerness common among the peasants of barren Norway. The young miner declined the purse which Hackett offered him. Keep your gold, Sir Envoy. I should lie if I said that I had joined the revolt for your Count Schumacher's sake. I rebel to free the miners from the guardianship of the crown. I rebel that my mother's bed may have a blanket less ragged than the coast of our good country, Norway. Far from seeming disconcerted, Mr. Hackett answered smilingly, Then I will send this money to your poor mother, my dear Norbith, so that she may have two new blankets to shield her from the cold wind this winter. The young man assented with a nod, and the envoy, like a skilful orator, made haste to add, But be careful not to repeat what you just now inconsiderately said, that you are not taking up arms in behalf of Schumacher, Count Griffenfeld. But, but, muttered the two old men, we know very well that the miners are oppressed, but we know nothing about this count, this prisoner of state. What? sharply rejoined the envoy. Are you so ungrateful? You groan in your subterranean caves, deprived of light and air, robbed of all your property, slave to the most onerous tutelage. Who came to your rescue? Who revived your failing courage? Who gave you gold and arms? Was it not my illustrious master, noble Count Griffenfeld, more of a slave and more unfortunate even than you? And now, loaded with his favors, would you refuse to use them to acquire his liberty with your own? You are right, interrupted the young miner. That would be an ill deed. Yes, Mr. Hackett, said the two old men. We will fight for Count Schumacher. Courage, my friends. Rise in his name. Bear your benefactor's name from one end of Norway to the other. Only listen. Everything seconds your righteous enterprise. You are about to be freed from a formidable enemy, General Levin de Knut, governor of the province. The secret power of my noble master, Count Griffenfeld, will soon procure his recall to Bergen. Come tell me, Cannibal, Jonas, and you, my dear Norbith, are all your comrades ready? My brethren of Guldbrandstal, said Norbith, only await my signal. Tomorrow, if you wish. Tomorrow, so be it. The young miners under your leadership must be the first to raise the standard. And you, my brave Jonas? 
six hundred heroes from the Faroe Islands, who for three days have lived on chamois flesh and bear's fat in Bannerlag Forest, only ask a blast from the horn of their old captain, Jonas of Lovig Town. Good. And you, Cannibal? All those who carry an axe in the gorges of Kjolen and climb the rocks with bare knees are ready to join their brothers, the miners, when they need them. Enough. Tell your comrades that they need not doubt their victory, added the envoy, raising his voice. For Hans of Iceland will be their captain. Is that certain? Is that certain? Is that certain? asked all three at once in a voice of mingled hope and fear. The envoy answered, I will meet you four days hence at the same hour with your united forces in Epsil Core Mine near Lake Mjösen on Blue Star Plain. Hans of Iceland will be with me. We, we will, will be there, there, said the three leaders. And may God not desert those whom the devil aids. Fear nothing from God, said Hackett with a sneer. Stay, you will find flags for your troops among the ruins of Crag. Do not forget the war cry. Long live Schumacher. We will rescue Schumacher. Now we must part. They will shortly break. But first, swear the most profound secrecy as to what has passed between us. Without a word, each of the three chiefs opened a vein in his left arm with the point of his sword. Then, seizing the envoy's hand, each let a few drops of blood trickle into it. You, you have, have our blood, blood, they said. Then the young man exclaimed, May all my blood flow forth like that which I now shed. May a malicious spirit destroy my plans as the hurricane does a straw. May my arm be of lead to avenge an insult. May bats dwell in my tomb. May I, still living, be haunted by the dead, and dead be profaned by the living. May my eyes melt with tears like those of a woman, if ever I speak of what has occurred at this time in Ralph the Giant's Meadow, and may the blessed saints deign to hear this my prayer. Amen. Amen, repeated the two old men. Then they parted, and nothing was left in the meadow but the smouldering fire, whose expiring embers burned up at intervals, and gleamed upon the summit of Ralph the Giant's ruined and deserted towers. End of chapter 18